Welcome to our next session, session number three, <clears throat> where we're going to look at Moses as the deliverer. And to introduce uh, Dave's session, he's asked that we read Exodus chapter 14, and we'll ask our brother Ashan to come forward and read that for us. Thanks, Ashan. Reading together uh, Exodus chapter 14. Excuse my throat. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and came before by a high road between Migdol and the sea or against Bald Zephon. Before shall ye and came by the sea, for Pharaoh will say for the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honoured upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took six hundred chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and, o and overtook them encamping by the sea beside Pihah Hirod before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt us with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is it not this word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show, show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord shall unto Moses, Wherefore Christ thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they call forward, but lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honour upon Pharaoh and upon all the host 
upon the chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind him and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind him, them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to them, so that the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left and the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to midst of the sea even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And it came to pass that in the morning watched the Lord, looked into the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud, and troubled the host of Egyptians, and took off their chariots, wheels, that they drive them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out, stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength. When the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Thanks, Ashan, for that reading. We now look forward to hearing from you, Dave, on Moses the Deliverer. Thanks, uh, Jamin, and good morning yet again, brethren and sisters. So we come now to the ten plagues and what uh, a remarkable set of events they were. We're not going to deal with them per se, because as I said in our opening study, we're here to consider the character of Moses. But just again to connect back with last class, just consider the extraordinary resilience of Moses under quite fierce opposition from Pharaoh. In, resisted, out, goes again, rebutted, yes I'll do something, doesn't happen, 
constant endurance under pressure from Moses. And look at some of the opposition we saw already, Exodus 5 verse 2. Who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let him go. And we talked about that, didn't we, in the context of preaching. You know, it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it? Have we somewhat given up? I think your ecclesia is wonderful. It's amazing to read of so many of the baptisms you've had and the um, people that attend your seminars. It's absolutely terrific. It's encouraging and inspiring to all of us because we're commanded to preach, aren't we? It's not an option. You know, one of the most commonly uh, referred to passages that we have in Romans is, is that little expression that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we sort of almost refer to that as a definition. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What's that really talking about? Well, that verse is actually talking about preaching. Because right before that, let me read to you what it says. It says, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Then it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So our obligation is to help people hear the word of God. That's what generates the faithful response. And we need that resilience, don't we? That courage of Moses to persevere. Not to just leave our light under a bushel, let it go out, but to continue to shine. And sometimes the opposition can be a little hard, can't it? It's not always welcomed shining the light, is it? But that's a logical thing. Jesus told us to expect that. He said people are not going to like it. He actually said men love darkness. Why is that? Why is it that most crime is committed under cover of darkness? It's because nobody likes to feel exposed. Nobody likes to feel guilty. Nobody likes to have someone shine a light on their evil deed. And also, if everything was just pitch black, there would be no relativity. Light is what gives the relativity. And that's the imagery that Jesus gave, wasn't it? He, he used all that imagery when he spoke to the disciples. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, the world hateth you, or it doesn't prefer you, doesn't like you. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not sinned. Okay, the righteousness of Jesus provided that relativity. If it was all black, if it was all sin, it would just be that. There's the relativity, he's saying. But now they have no cloak for their sin. It's exposed, it's not covered. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not sinned. 
but now they have both seen and hated me and my father. So the point is, people don't want to feel guilty. People don't want to feel exposed. And sometimes when we talk about the moral principles, the ethical values of God, of the Bible, it can make people feel bad and they don't like it. They would rather things stay as they were. Think of John the Baptist. That's probably one of the starkest examples, isn't it? What courage. He just says, Herod, it's not right. It's not right. What reaction did John the Baptist get in that case from Herodias? You know, is it, oh yeah, whatever. No, sadly, he lost his head. Because people don't like ever to feel what they're doing is wrong. Do we have the courage to say what we believe against that backdrop? Moses, to the most powerful man in the world, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Who, who is the Lord? But he kept at it right through that period until finally they were let go. Hebrews 11 um, verse 27 says, By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, I, as I said, that's not when he fled to Midian because it says quite clearly that he feared for his life at that time. I personally believe that's referring to when he forsook the royal palace and went out to his brethren. Alternatively, it's also referring to here at the end of the ten plagues when he says, we're out. We're going. We're going into that wilderness. I'm going to take the hand of that angel. He said, certainly I am with you. And I'm going to take that hand and resolutely we are going out into the wilderness. In faith, believing that God and the angel would be with them. Despite what opposition might come, which we know did come. A lot of opposition. Reminds me of Jesus. Remember it says of our Lord Jesus that he set his face like a flint. And I reckon that was Moses and Aaron. Right, we're off. And all the people rallied in around them and out they went. But it says a really lovely point. It says he endured seeing him who is invisible. Who was right there in front of Moses? Right there in front of him was the most powerful man in the world, the king, the pharaoh. What did Moses see? He saw the one who dwells in light, unapproachable, the immortal, invisible, but the king of the universe, our God. He saw him who is invisible. Many of us, I think, would have been desperately intimidated by this remarkable Pharaoh. Not Moses. He endured seeing the king immortal and invisible. And again, brothers and sisters, I don't think we would 
we will have the faith of a Moses to resolutely go out from Egypt to forsake this world unless we can see God, unless we can see our reward reserved in heaven with him for us that our Lord Jesus will bring to us. If we don't close that future with reality, we will perish. Without a vision, the people perish. How brightly is that vision burning? Do we see that reality? Do we see God or do we see the powers of this world? That's how Moses endured. That's how he did it. Chapter 14 of Exodus. Here we are. This is a dramatic chapter. We're at the Red Sea. There they are, the children of Israel. They're encamped by the perimeter of the Red Sea. Pharaoh, meanwhile, verse 6, made ready his chariot. All the people were with him, 600 chariots, and then all the rest of the chariots of Egypt, captains over them, and they pursued down on these children of Israel. They swooped down on them, hemmed in by the edge of the Red Sea, trapped, doomed, unarmed and bound for the slaughter. Verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And verse 11, They said to Moses, To Moses, it's all your fault. Straight at him. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? And then verse 12, Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die out here in the wilderness. Brethren and sisters, when we're under pressure, do we capitulate? Do we despair for our life? When we face some of that pressure, as we said last study, sometimes it, it might just be a disparaging remark, some off-handed comment, but sometimes that's enough for us to capitulate, to just blend in, to just assimilate and to not stand in faith. It's pretty hard almost to stand in judgment of these people with this great army bearing down on them. They're stuck there by the Red Sea. Might have had a few little possessions with them, some jewellery that they had found, but certainly not a lot of weaponry. And they despaired for their life and they turned again on poor Moses. It's your fault. We should have stayed there. We should have served the Egyptians. Is that how we sometimes feel under pressure? Might as well serve the Egyptians. Might as well blend in with our earthly masters. Well, how did Moses react? What amazing faith. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. And skipping down a little, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Just imagine that, brethren and sisters. And we've got to put ourselves in this story. The thundering hooves getting louder and louder. They look up. 
They behold all these chariots bearing down, the swords and the spears glistening in the moonlight. They're, they're petrified, hemmed in, unarmed, doomed to a certain death. And Moses says, stand still. Stand still. What incredible faith. You know, brethren and sisters, if we're honest about it, sometimes when we're under duress or stress in our lives, what do some of us do? In our anxiety, our stress, our worry, we, we often just embroil loads and loads of people in our melodrama, the drama of our lives. And we take a whole lot of people down with us. Perhaps standing still occasionally and praying to God might be a better strategy. Another strategy is the Jacob strategy. You remember that with Esau bearing down? What did he do? He resorted to his own industry, his own ingenuity. Right, let's all line up. The faves here, right at the back, you know, all of them lined up. He had a big strategy, all sorted, right? All sorted. Until he wrestled with an angel, realised he was weak and then he became strong. He became great because he had to rely on God. We just don't do that enough, do we? And sometimes we think, oh, David, that's really great. Yeah, it's good theory. Yeah, try that in practice, yeah? When your life's going pear-shaped, you just sit still and pray. Well, yeah. It's a whole lot better than some of the things that we do. And Moses did it under extraordinary pressure. Pressure for their very, very lives. What about when we come under pressure from the world? Let me read to you the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's what they were like, sheep just huddled by the sea and these wolves bearing down, no match. They will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings. You'll even be hated of all men for my sake. But fear not them which, even if they kill the body, are not able to kill the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So no matter how stressful it gets, fairly few of us have been dragged before governors, hated by everyone, killed the body. We've not lost our life for what we believe in. But Jesus is saying, you know what? Even if, let me reassure you, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Not even a, the most common sparrow falls to the ground without my knowledge of it. And you're so much more valuable than a sparrow. That requires faith in the future reward though, doesn't it? Through much tribulation we'll enter the kingdom of God. But we've got to believe that 
or we won't withstand the tribulation, will we? We'll capitulate, we'll cave. How deep is our faith? I think it's in Corinthians um, where it says to stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men that wait. I'm sure it means men and women. There's a lot of very strong women as well. Quit yourself like a man. Be strong. And actually the word stand is often used to refer to that strength of courage under pressure. That's why Moses said, stand still. Don't run around creating more drama for everyone. Stand still. Listen to Ephesians, how many times we see stand. Just stand. I'm going to read to you the words of Ephesians 6 verse 10. My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God. They had no armour. That you may be able to stand. And then moving along, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Stand therefore, praying always. Four times. Brethren and sisters, we won't win. It's not a race. We won't run into the kingdom feeling like we've won. It's all just, will we still be standing? Will we be standing in the trenches or will have we deserted and run back to Egypt? Remember the words of Jesus, no man who's put his hand to the plough and turns back is fit for the kingdom. It's not perhaps sometimes in our lives, brethren and sisters, about even moving forward. Life's tough. It's hard. Sometimes we're not moving forward, but are we standing? Still standing. Will we be still standing when our Lord returns? That's the challenge. Let's lock arms, as it were, in the trenches and stay standing. They said we should be back in Egypt. It would have been so much better back there, turning back. Moses said, let's stand still. Our God will deliver us. And he did, remarkably, and we know that story. But look at the next pressure on Moses. Amazing deliverance through the Red Sea. Come across to chapter 15, verse 22. Just around the corner... Bang, the next challenge. Look at the words there. So Moses brought them through the trivial event of just walking through a sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They were there three days, found no water, came to Marah. They couldn't drink the water for it's bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah and they, uh, Marah, and they murmured against who? Oh, Moses, it's your fault. It's your fault. Again, it's your fault. I'm just the shepherd. No, no, it's your fault. What shall we drink? Brothers and sisters, as I've said, there are moments in all of our lives, I think in the ecclesia, sadly, we might have tried to organise something, show a little bit of leadership. doesn't go as everyone necessarily wants. 
Mm. It's your fault. You're to blame. Don't like it. How do we respond sometimes in those situations, brethren and sisters? Do we fight fire with fire? Do we give as good as we get? Do we fight back? How does Moses react under that sort of pressure when there's blame and criticism? Verse 25, Moses cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. It's a great model, brethren and sisters, isn't it? Rather than fighting fire, let's take it to God and he'll show us a tree if we believe it. There's some great models, isn't there? Think of um, 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Cast all your care upon God. For he cares for you. Philippians 4 verse 6. In everything, by thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And you'll feel the peace of God that passes all understanding. Again, we know all those quotes. But when we're criticised, when people murmur against us, we say, hang on a minute, it's not my fault. It's not about me. We fire up. We fight back. Moses. What does he do? He cries to God and he shows him a tree. And that can happen today to us, can't it, brethren and sisters? You know, Jesus said, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Because I will give you rest. I will give rest unto your souls. How does that work? You know, he, he says, take my yoke, my burden upon you. That doesn't sound like rest. Well, because he says, cast your burdens upon me. Cast them on me. How often do we really do that? You know, we are in a world where things like the, the, the tragedy of mental illness, anxiety, depression racks us and it's a terrible scourge. And prayer and, and reading our Bible is not a panacea, but it can help, brethren and sisters. Do we cry unto God? Or do we sometimes just fight back, which Moses could have done so easily? Do we place our burdens upon him. And even when it does get really hard, when we're reduced to tears, do we ask God to catch those tears? Or do we just cry? Even in our darkest moments when we are in tears, our prayer should be, God, please catch them. And if you're thinking, that's an odd thing, David, that you're saying that, please God, catch my tears. I'm saying that because he says he will. There's a really beautiful little psalm, Psalm 56, and Jono Wigsell's here somewhere, there he is. At Jono's baptism, he asked me to talk about this psalm, Psalm 56. Let me just read some of 
it to you. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresses me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. For they be many that fight against me. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. But thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into your bottle. When I cry unto you, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. So, brethren and sisters, even in our darkest moments, when the stress feels like the psalmist there, when we feel all alone, and all we can do is have a good cry, even in those moments, let's pray that God will catch our tears in his bottle. Just as no sparrow falls to the ground, neither do our tears. He hears our cry and he will help. Sometimes in ways we can't see, sometimes it might all be in the future in the kingdom, but he hears. Let's cry unto him rather than crying back at those who murmur against us. Chapter 16, verse 1. On the 15th day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt, what do they decide to do? Let's all murmur again. It says the whole congregation, verse 2, of the children of Israel again murmured against Moses and Aaron. You have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What does, what does Moses do? Have a look in verse 7. His answer is very wise. He says, In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. Like that? They murmured against him. But verse 7, he says, you're actually murmuring against God. It's not about me is what he's saying. Don't murmur against me. It's never been about me. I'm the who am I. It's not about me. If you murmur against me, I'm simply God's instrument. You're murmuring against God. So if we do get criticism... That's probably one of the ultimate tests of uh, meekness, isn't it? It's pretty easy to be humble when someone comes, oh, yeah, this was great. Oh, no, it was nothing. What about when they say, that was shocking? Oh, come on. Uh, hello. So here, when they murmured against him, it's fine. Don't, you, you, you're not murmuring against me. You're murmuring against God. It's not about me. Never has been. Never will be. But there's a gentle reminder. Just be a little bit careful about murmuring against God. Chapter 18, verse 1. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. I hope you'll excuse me for doing this. But this piece means a lot to me um, in chapter 18, um, verse 1. 
I think it's very relevant to us in our community today. Verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, it says that he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so then in verse 5, it says that he came with Moses' sons and his wife unto Moses in the wilderness. So Jethro comes to visit. What happens? Have a look in verse 13. It's quite interesting. Jethro is a very wise man and he's a very observant man. So verse 13, It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? And all the people stand by thee from morning unto even. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Well, because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me. And I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So what an extraordinary insight, brethren and sisters, we get into the character of this wonderful man, Moses. He is a remarkable man, chosen of God, servant of God, friend of God, meekest man upon the face of the earth. But he wasn't perfect. One of the little propensities he's had and we, he, that he had, and we've already seen this, was a bit of a tendency to take matters into his own hands. We saw that in the sands of Egypt. We saw that intervening with the shepherds. We will see that on a number of occasions. And here we see it quite stark. One of his challenges was a failure to genuinely empower and trust others and to then delegate genuinely to them. He was a man who sought to control outcomes by his own actions. And it manifests itself here quite profoundly in what Jethro observes. Jethro's verdict, look at it again in verse 17. The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away, and look at this, both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Okay, the point Jethro is making is, Moses, this is unsustainable. The matters that you're having to deal with will um, have an impact on you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and therefore inevitably physically through a lack of sleep, through mental exhaustion. We know Mo Moses was a remarkable man. At the end of his life, he was full of vitality from head to toe. But Jethro is saying, it's not sustainable. You have to empower and trust others. You need to become a leader of leaders. You need to bring others through. Moses, look around. This is not good for you and it's not good for the people. He says quite specifically, 
thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. Now, why does Jethro say that? What he's saying is, Moses, you are breeding an immaturity into this people. You are building an emotional reliance upon you. You're not building in them a sense of resilience, accountability, responsibility. You're not developing leaders, fellow laborers, fellow burden bearers. And most importantly, Moses, your succession planning is really bad. If you implode here, who is going to step into the vacuum? You're actually risking the people. It's a precarious situation, Moses. It's not wise. And then he gives some great advice. Verse 21. Provide out of all the people able men such as fear God. Moses, by the way, they exist, Moses. They're there. Men of truth that hate covetousness like you. Place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons. They have it all just on you alone. And it shall be that every great matter, the really complex and difficult ones, they'll come to you. But every smaller matter, they will judge so that it will be easier for yourself and they shall burden, bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God command thee so, then shalt thou be able to endure and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. And we see that verse 24, Moses wisely and very meekly heeded the wise counsel of his father-in-law. And brethren and sisters, it's here that we want to just pause a little bit. You know, leadership in the truth is a marathon. It's not a sprint, isn't it? We have to endure. And it's not an individual sport. It's not golf. It's a team sport. It takes all of us to work together, to lead together. There was a fair bit of Elijah, I think, in Moses. You remember Elijah's lesson? Oh, woe is me. It's just me. There's nobody. I'm so depressed here, God. This is terrible. And God says, well, actually, Elijah, let me just share with you that there's not just a couple of others here and there. There's actually 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Look around you, Elijah. See them. See that ability, that talent. Empower them. Trust them. Delegate to them. Work with them. Bring them in. Work together. Don't make it about you. And Moses, what a remarkable lesson. There were these men, men of truth, that hated covenants that were good leaders, they can work with you, Moses, empower them, trust them, delegate them. And brethren and sisters, I think for us, this is actually a really relevant thing, I think, for our community today. 
The next time we say that there aren't enough volunteers, it's falling to too few, there aren't enough workers in God's vineyard, where are they? Let's look around because they're there. Sometimes they just need someone like Moses to believe in them, to ask, to empower them, to help them, to support them, to enable them, to give them a shot. The next time we feel like it's all on my shoulders, woe is me, I'm bearing the world on my shoulders and if only these young ones would step up Rather than pointing the finger, let's point it back at ourselves. And I include myself in this. How much time have we really spent teaching the younger ones? Are we despising their youth? Which Paul said to Timothy, don't let people do that. Perhaps are we being just a little bit too conservative and worried that it might not be perfect, that we don't give them a shot. In whatever service that is, and I'm not talking just about the platform, that they might even have the chance to learn from their mistakes, which we all have too, haven't we? Are we really empowering others, helping them to feel confident to have a go, to pick up the burden and to bear the load with us. And I make a specific reference here to our younger people. Do we sometimes value experience too much over enthusiasm? Do we sometimes put too high a premium on performance over passion? Because a lot of the time our young have passion and enthusiasm, but they may not be the best, but nor will we. I think it's really, really important that we harness that. Why is that? Because our young people are talented, extremely talented. In fact, if we don't harness our young today, their enthusiasm their passion, their creativity, if we don't embrace it, harness it, shape it. They have some weird ideas sometimes, some zany ideas. Do we just dismiss them or do we say, look, I can see some merit there, but maybe we could just shape that a little bit like this. How about if we went forward on this basis? You see the young person go, that's great. But if it's always, no, that's ridiculous. Can't can't do that. Or young Johnny, not sure if we... He's not really up for it. And if young Johnny's always never up for it, well, how does young Johnny feel? We all learn, we all grow, and we all develop with time. Moses needed to learn to empower and trust and delegate to others so that they could step up around him. No one was as good a judge in Israel as Moses. 
But Jethro said, work with them. Because if you don't, it's not sustainable. And brethren and sisters, if we don't work with our young, guess who will? Their employer. Their employer goes, awesome. Young, passionate, enthusiastic, creative, innovative. Wow, fantastic. Here, go do, empowered. Wow, they take off and there's young people doing extraordinary things. And in our community, mm, tradition's more important than teaching. The experience and performance is more important than enthusiasm and passion. Let's really empower our young. Let's sit with them, teach them, coach them, mentor them, empower and trust them. Allow them every now and again to fail or make a mistake and learn, but make them feel loved, appreciated and valued. It's so important. It's so important. Let's talk about succession planning. Let's make it real in our ecclesias so that we have this young group here equipped, ready to step up and lead tomorrow. Let's really embrace their enthusiasm because they are the future of our community. Let's have a look at verse um, 24. We saw that um, Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Very meek, very wise. He didn't take it personal. He saw the wisdom and he did it. I'm just going to read to you something that Moses added for himself. When he talks about this, he reminisces on it in Deuteronomy 1. And in verse 9, he humbly fronts the people and he says to them, he confesses. He says, I am not able to bear you myself alone. He recognised it. But then in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 1, he says, you shall not respect persons in judgment. So he taught them how to judge. He says, when you judge, don't respect persons, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man. An odd expression, but we'll come back to that. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. Now, there's no record of Moses being told that by Jethro or God. That's his tip. That's how Moses judged. Let's just unpack some of those words if you're looking at, at it there in, in Deuteronomy 1. Because they're very, very interesting words. When it says there um, the word respect, okay, you shall not respect persons in judgment. The word respect actually means to recognise, to know or to be acquainted with somebody. That's what the word respect means there in Deuteronomy 1. Okay. Similarly, the word persons is literally the word faces. It's actually the exact same word rendered face as in ye shall not be afraid of the face of man. Okay? And then the last one is the word afraid is really an odd expression. It means to sojourn 
dwell or abide with. So very interesting, and a lot of that's lost in the translation. So let's just unpack that. He said respect people you recognise or acquainted with. It's basically saying when you judge, be blind. I think that's a bit odd, David. Well, now in, for example, my profession, when we get a resume, it has no photos, it doesn't include the name, anything that's gender identifying is gone. It has to be blind to strip out any form of prejudice or discrimination. What Moses is saying is when you judge, be blind. Don't say, oh, I recognise. So Moses got them lining up, all the other judges. Oh, oh it's Greg Horde, right. Very favourable to Greg, I recognise him. Who are you? No problem. He's saying don't be like that. Be blind when you judge. Then that word um, persons, as I said, is the word faces. Don't be partial to those you know. And then the word afraid, as I said, means to sojourn, to dwell or to sit down with and give time. Again, what he's saying is do you have the same time for the small and the great? Do we give the same rub of the green to someone little in the ecclesia or do we give them short shrift? Done. Oh, but mm, this is a very esteemed brother here. Um, we need to spend a lot of time here. Give them a lot of time. The benefit of the doubt. But this little person in the ecclesia, straight, quick, done. That's what Moses is saying. No, don't be like that. It's not about that. You cannot be partial. Don't be a respecter of persons, whether they're great or small, whether you recognise them or not. Give all of them the same time of day. What a great man Moses was. That's his counsel to these new judges. That's how we want to judge. And again, I said that some of the most confronting words in the Bible are in James. Remember I talked about um, one of those other quotes from James. What about that other one that James says around partiality and respect of persons? Do you sometimes feel a bit awkward when you read it in James? Let me read it to you now. James 2 verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly, your ecclesia, a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the fancy clothing, and say to him, Oh, wow, sit thou here in this place. And then you say to the poor, I'll stand up there, up at the back. Or, or maybe sit here under my footstool. Uh, it's a great spot for you. Are you not then partial in yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? If you have respect to persons, he doesn't just say this is not good, it's not right. He says you commit sin. And are convinced of the law 
as transgressors. So in judging that way, you become guilty of the very law you're trying to arbitrate on. So let's be blind judges. Not about status, not about age or esteem or wealth or clothing, whether we like them or not, know them or not, great or small. Same time of day, fair, even judgment. What a wonderful judge Moses was. There was none better, but he was also really meek and he heeded that wonderful counsel from Jethro. Build a succession plan. Empower and trust others. Delegate to them. You'll be sustainable. It'll be good for the people and it's good for us today too. Thanks, Jamin.